Hello, this is Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So how do we go about gaining unity in this world? We definitely need it, don't we? I mean, everybody wants unity, everybody talks about unity, everybody calls for unity, but achieving it is a whole different matter, right? It sort of seems that most people today think that unity requires conformity, right? Uh, We think that unity is when everybody talks the same, acts the same, believes the same, maybe even dresses the same. That might be a little extreme. We like diversity of clothing options, but, you know, has the same opinions. And it seems that when uh, differences occur, then division results and unity dies. (laughs) And so some people seek, they go to great lengths to try to achieve that unity. They uh, maybe try to silence and cancel those who have different opinions. Uh, We see this all the time from various governments and social media accounts and other uh, people with power and authority. Um, but uh, the, the thing is, 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 is we all do this to some degree or another churches, if they don't like the, the opinions or views that somebody has, they kick them out, excommunicate them, uh, disassociate from them, whatever. And, and but in, in, in all cases, it seems that, uh, when we're achieving unity, uh, but conflict occurs, the solution seems to be to get everybody else to change. You need to change your ways so I can get along with you. Right? We point at their faults, what they said, what they did, uh, and, and say that if there's going to, a peace, to be peace, you must change. Well, guess what? That's what we're going to challenge today in Ephesians 4, 1, 2, 3. That's what Paul is going to challenge uh, as we look at these verses. In this text that we're looking at today, Paul shows us how we can have unity even when there is disagreement. That's where we're headed today. But before we look at that, let's consider... A question from a reader. You have a mail message. So I got a question from a reader who subscribes to my email list, and uh, this is from Ed. He says this, Can you tell me your position on the Trinity? Do you have a book about your views on the Trinity? Okay, uh, thanks, Ed, for your question. No, I do not have a book on my views about the Trinity. Uh, I have written several articles about it, though, on my blog at redeeminggod.com. So you can find those pretty much just by going to redeeminggod.com, scrolling to the bottom to the search area down there and typing in Trinity and looking for it. You can pretty much do that with any topic you have a question about. Uh, But one of the places where I have written about the Trinity is an article called I'll Define the Trinity If You Define God. Uh, You can even search Google for that and uh, Google will serve it up to you. But in the article, I basically say, yes, I believe in the Trinity. I believe that God, uh, there's one God in three persons. That's sort of the official definition of the Trinity. And in that article, I go on to state several reasons why I believe in the Trinity. And if you read that article, you'll see that some of the reasons I have for why I believe in the Trinity are a little different than what you might find in a typical theology book. Um... And so you can sort of read the article and see what some of those are. But let me just summarize one of them for you, one of the ones that I think is is the most significant. And it's this. Uh, All Christians believe uh, that God, the essence of God, does not change, okay? Uh, In theological terms, we say God is immutable. 
All right, it means God is unchangeable in his essence. Okay, and uh, along with that, all Christians believe that God is relational, right? Uh, that he wants and seeks a relationship with us and with the other parts of his creation, such as angels, even animals to a degree. Uh, and part of God's relational aspect is that he is a God of love, that he communicates. That's why we have the Bible. That's why he sent Jesus. Okay, so so God is relational. God is loving. God, he, he communicates with us. Okay, now you take those two things and think back, go all the way back into eternity past. Little mind exercise here. No, it's hard for us humans to understand eternity past, but uh, even if you think of sort of a timeline, which isn't exactly accurate, but whatever, uh, think back to way before time existed, way before angels existed, way before humans existed. What was there? Well, it was just God. Just God. Okay? Now, if God does not exist in a trinity, okay, then how can it be in eternity past, before angels, before humans, before anything, if God does not exist in a trinity, how can it be for God to be relational way back then if there's no such thing as a trinity? Right? It would be impossible. God cannot be relational when there's nobody to relate to. Okay, so if God does not eternally exist as a triune being, then God would not be eternally relational, which means that when God does finally get around to creating angels, creating humans, and so on, then an aspect of God would change. He wasn't relational because there's was no one to relate to if, if there's no Trinity. And now that angels and humans exist, he does, he, he becomes uh, relational, which means he changes, which means he's not immutable. That he, that he changes, okay? So you see, uh, if, if God is not a trinity, then you cannot say that God is immutable. You'd have to say God does change. But a pretty central aspect of, of traditional Christian theology is that God is immutable. So anyway, look, the only way that God can be immutable and eternally relational, eternally loving, I mean, think about it. If there's no one for God to love, then God cannot be loving. <laughs> We're pretty certain God has been eternally loving, right? Well, the only way God can be eternally loving is if God exists in a trinity, so that there's other persons for him, for God to love. So uh, the only way for God to be eternally loving and eternally relational is if God has existed eternally in a, as a triune being. All right? So anyway, that's just some food for thought. I do talk about it in that article. You can go read that if you want to learn more and see some of my other thoughts on the Trinity. Thank you, Ed, for your question. And it's sort of interesting, we are discussing a similar concept in our study of Ephesians 4 today. We're going to be looking at unity, as I sort of hinted at, the, hinted at there in the introduction. Um, and unity, of course, is an eternal attribute of God, which he could not have without being a Trinity. So, sort of ties in there. But let's head into our study today of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of sort of a headbanger intro there. Uh, a little shocking. I wasn't expecting that. Okay, I randomly sort of picked these off of a list I have, and that's the <laughs> that's what came up today. So, all right, look, uh, we're in the we're entering into the second half 
of our study of Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters long. We've completed the study of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. We are now starting Ephesians chapter 4. We're halfway through. And many have noted that sort of a brief outline or summary of Ephesians sort of focuses around three key terms. I've talked about this before. Uh, Sit, walk, stand. And a lot of people have pointed out that a key term, a key word in the first three chapters of Ephesians is the word sit. We learn about how we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, all right? Uh, That means we have all the blessings, benefits, riches, and inheritance that Jesus Christ has because we are seated with him. This idea of seated with him means that we're ruling with him uh, and all of the privilege and power that comes with that. Okay, Uh, you just think about Jesus being seated on his throne. We are seated with him, next to him, participating in in ruling and guiding this world. That's what Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about. So just sort of remember in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, first part, uh, Paul wrote all about the riches of our inheritance in Jesus Christ and how uh, we are to be the fullness of God in every way in the world so that we so that we might uh, be witnesses to the principalities and powers on how to live a better way to live. One of the reasons we're seated with Jesus Christ is to show this world how Jesus lives so that they can follow our example as we follow the example of Jesus. All right, And, and then in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 3, Paul wrote about what it means to be seated with Christ and how we're to, you again, use this position, this power, this authority, to show the world a better way to live. We follow the example of Jesus so that the world can see Jesus in us and follow our example. So just like Jesus loved his enemies, we're supposed to love our enemies. Just as Jesus died for his enemies, we're supposed to die for ours if necessary. And as we do this, the world sees a better way to peace. They think, the world thinks that we gain peace through war and violence. Jesus shows that we gain peace through love and forgiveness. And the church, we, followers of Jesus, are supposed to show the world this better way to peace. Okay? We get all of that by being seated with Christ and ruling with Christ in this way. Okay? Now, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we still have these other two key terms, walk and stand. The word stand is emphasized in the very last half of Ephesians chapter 6, in the spiritual warfare section, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. So we'll be talking about that when we get there. Uh, Walking then, this middle key term, is in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, and going all the way through chapter 4, chapter 5, and half of chapter 6, right there to uh, 6, 9. Okay? So uh, sit, walk, stand. And this walking section then is basically, it's following this image of uh, practical steps. Okay, what is a walk? It consists of one step after another. So, so practical steps we can take as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus. Uh, how or why to do what? Well, <laughs> to live as Jesus lived, to do what Jesus did, to carry out our task, our mission, our purpose in this world. Why did Jesus give us all of his power and authority and inheritance and riches and and instruction and teaching and give us his example, everything we learned about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, so that we can walk as Jesus did, so that we can live in this world the same way Jesus lived. 
Okay, so that's basically what Ephesians 4, 5, and half of 6 are all about. And in fact, if you were just to open up your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and sort of scan through these two and a half chapters, you would see this keyword walk repeated over and over and over. In fact, some of your Bibles might even have headings, little subheadings that show this keyword walk repeated over and over. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, which we're starting to talk about today, is about walking in unity. Then verses 17 through 32, the last half of chapter 4 is about walking in purity. Uh, First part of Ephesians 5, walking in love, then walking in light, then walking carefully in this world. Then uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9, the last part of walking is how to walk in this world. Very practical ways there about walking in this world. Okay, so all of these instructions are about walking properly as a follower of Jesus. And they all have one main point. Okay, so all these various steps we're supposed to take as followers of Jesus all have one main point. And it is this that I've mentioned multiple times in multiple podcasts already even today several times. Why do we walk as Jesus walked? Not just so we can be better people, not just so we can whatever, fix our lives. No, the reason is so that we can be an example to the world on how to live in a better way. Jesus is our example. We follow him. We are the example to the world so that they can follow us and in so doing become followers of Jesus themselves. And as we enter into Ephesians chapter 4, this first thing is sort of the key thing. Remember, in Ephesians 2, the big problem with the world is that everybody is given over to violence. And we see that. We're on the brink of war right now. As I was preparing the study this week, I can't even figure out what's going on over there in Russia and Ukraine and China and everything else. But um, I don't know if we're going to go to war or not. But everybody doesn't want to go to war. Everybody wants peace. And God is saying to us in Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus is the way to peace. And guess what? You, the church, followers of Jesus, you show the world how to live at peace with each other. The world is watching us. And if we do a bad job of showing the world how to live at peace, then we can't criticize the world for not knowing how to live at peace. We are an example to the world of how peace works. And how do you think the church is doing on that? Well, just look around. It's pretty poorly, honestly, right? Uh, This is our primary task, our primary purpose in this world. And we're pretty much failing at it. We get a grade of F, fail. So that's why Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are so important. It's going to show us how to walk as Jesus walked. And we're beginning today, that's all introduction to 4, 5, and 6. We're beginning today by looking at just the first three verses of this first part of how we're supposed to walk, walking in unity. Just sort of the introduction to these, to this, uh, walking in unity is verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. We're just looking at the first three verses today. Let's begin then in verse 1. Paul writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Okay, so he says here, walk worthy, but basically he is pointing us back to the first three chapters and said, look, everything that I've shown you, you have in Jesus Christ, you need to walk worthy of that. Walk in a way that uh, brings honor and glory to Jesus, that, that makes people think of Jesus when they look at you, to, to, to walk in a certain way. And this word walk worthy is peripateo in Greek. It literally means to walk about. Okay, it doesn't mean take one step. It means to explore. 
and, and walk all over the place. Okay, it, it's our, it's about the entire manner of your life, the way you conduct yourself. Okay, it's not just how you conduct yourself with your family at home, but also in your neighborhood, at your work place, uh, even with people that you don't really get along with very well. Okay, how you behave everywhere you go, uh, everywhere you walk. That that's what Paul is talking about here. Okay, and then he mentions this word calling. I don't really want to get into the controversy of this. If you're familiar with the whole Calvinism, Arminianism controversy, you know that the word calling is sort of uh, one of the central words they argue about. And I have written about this elsewhere. If you're part of my discipleship group, you can listen to my lesson on election in the Gospel Dictionary online course. If you're not part of my discipleship group, I have a book that you can also get on Amazon uh, about on Romans 9. And it's called The Rejustification of God, which also explains more on election. You can get that. It's not my fullest explanation, but uh, that's there for you as well. But look, in, in this whole debate, there's this whole debate about calling. You might, if you're familiar with it, you might heard, be heard of, uh, you know, effectual calling and general calling and, and, and all these different sort of words they use to relate calling to election. Um, and specific calling, particular calling, all these sorts of things. Look, I don't want to get into the debate, but uh, the bottom line is, as I talk about in my book and in my lesson on election, just as election has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with who goes to heaven and who doesn't, it's the same with calling. Okay, calling, <laughs> the calling of God has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with who goes to heaven. Both election and calling have to do with service. God elects, raises people up, calls people to perform particular acts of service for him and his mission and his goals and his purposes in this world. Election is to service, so is calling. It is a call to serve him and what he wants to do in this world. So here in Ephesians 1, when Paul talks about calling here, He's saying that, look, you are followers of Jesus. You're Christians. God is your boss, and he is calling you. <laughs> He's giving you an assignment, uh, 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 instructions, a task that he wants you to perform. Okay? Uh, God is not calling you to become a Christian. You already are a Christian. Now, because you're a Christian, that means God is calling you to do something, to help him with something in this world. And we've already talked about what that is, just as Jesus was our example and what God, how God wants us to live. We are to be an example to the world on how God wants them to live. Okay, that is our calling. That is our assignment, our task, our mission. Okay, and here the first part of Ephesians 4, our first instruction, our first step in our assignment is to walk in unity. We'll see that in future verses where Paul really emphasizes the unity here. But the church is supposed to live in unity because that's how the world learns to live in unity. And as I said in the introduction to our study today, there's a big problem with unity though, right? Because people want unity, but they don't know how to achieve it. Again, they think that unity is achieved through conformity. The world thinks that if we're going to get along with others, then they need to become like me behave like me, have the same political opinions as I do, uh, enjoy the same activities, sometimes even dress the same way in some of the more extreme forms of conformity. Um, and when divisions occur, people are faced with a choice. A lot of times they just 
choose not to hang out with those people, maybe not even like them, but in some more extreme cases, they might try to arrest them or freeze their bank accounts, as is going on in Canada right now, or uh, get them fired from their jobs, or again, even more extreme cases, maybe even kill them. Okay, And of course, none of that is unifying. That's divisive. And it, it, it kills, it destroys, which of course is satanic. Okay? So, um, Paul is going to challenge this whole approach to unity. That's the way the world approaches unity, and that's the wrong way. Paul, in these next two verses of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul is going to show us how we can have unity with other people, even when we disagree with them. It has nothing to do with getting them to change. Okay? How to have unity even when there's disagreement. How to be unified when, dis when differences exist. The key to unity, let me just tip my hand here or tip Paul's hand. The key to unity, uh, not surprisingly, was first taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Is that surprising? <laughs> Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' instructions on what he wants his disciples to do. And so not surprisingly, there's sections in there about how to live in unity with one another. And in Matthew 7, 3 through 5, this is that section where Jesus is talking about when you see your brother in sin, right? Um, when you see the, the speck in your brother's eye, the fault in your brother's eye, first, Jesus says, take out the plank in your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay? Uh, this is a teaching on unity. <laughs> and... If you think about this, I think many times us Christians have applied this all wrong. Yes, we say, okay, fine, I do have this fault in my own life that I better take care of. We take care of it. And then we think, okay, now that frees me up to go help my brother get rid of the sin in his life. But wait, are you saying that once you get rid of the plank in your own eye, you are now plank free? <laughs> There's no more planks in your life that might be blocking or blurring your vision to help your brother get the speck out of his eye? I don't think so. The truth of the matter is, is that if we really do follow the instructions of Jesus here in taking the planks out of our own eye before we try to help our brother get the speck out of his, we will never, ever, ever come to the end of the planks in our own eye, right? I mean, because be honest, it's not that we have a plank in our eye. Most of us, maybe I'll speak for myself, I don't have a plank in my eye. I have an entire lumber yard in there. I suspect maybe you do too. <laughs> it's not just a plank, it's piles and piles of planks. And taking one plank out of your eye, in my experience, when I take one plank out of my eye, when I fix one fault, guess what it does? It helps my vision, yeah, <laughs> but only to see 10 more planks that are in my eye. You get rid of one, and you're like, oh, there's 10 more. <laughs> and you never come to the end of your own planks, okay? Uh, getting rid of, rid of one plank just clears up your vision enough to see more. So if we really follow the instructions of Jesus uh, in, in Matthew 7, 3 through 5, Jesus is saying, look, if you want to get rid of sin in the world, because we do, right? We want to get rid of sin in the world. How do we do that? The instruction of Jesus in Matthew 7 seems to be, don't worry about anybody else. Get rid of sin in your own life. Focus on yourself. 
Not in a selfish way. We're not saying be selfish. No, it's the opposite because selfishness is one of those planks. But get rid of sin in your own life. Okay? Um, There's more than enough sin in our own life that needs to be fixed. Okay? I'm convinced Paul takes that idea from Jesus and applies it here in Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 in regards to unity. Paul is saying, so you want to live in unity? We all want to live in unity, but the world doesn't seem to know how to live in unity. Why? Because they're all focusing on the speck in everybody else's eye. So the problem, or the solution maybe, isn't to focus on the problem in everybody else's life, but to focus on the planks in our own life. If you want unity, Paul says, look to your own heart first. Take the plank out of your own eye First. And so in Ephesians 4, 2 through 3, Paul sort of lists seven planks, or maybe they're sort of reverse planks, what will happen in your life when you take planks out of your life, I guess. Uh, basically, they are seven attitudes here that we need to develop individually in our own heart if we're going to achieve unity. Achieving unity is not about changing that person over there so that I can get along with them. Achieving unity is about changing me, okay? To achieve unity, we need to develop these seven attitudes of unity in our own heart and not worry about anybody else. So let's look at these. Now, let me just read them for you. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit— in the bond of peace. All right, two verses, seven attitudes that help us walk towards unity. Let's discuss them real briefly, one at a time. First, lowliness means humility, lowliness of mind, uh, esteeming ourselves as small. Uh, The the, the Greek word, interestingly, that Paul uses here uh, was coined by Christians. It was invented by Christians. The, the, The Greek language, surprisingly, had no word for humility. Uh, well, they did, but it usually had an insult attached to it. Like, oh, look at him. Uh, he's so low. You know, it, wasn't, it was not considered a good thing. Only in Christianity did humility become uh, to be considered a virtue. And so the, the Greek language didn't actually have a virtuous form of humility. And so Christians coined one. They invented one. Um, so... so it, the Greeks looked upon people who were humble as someone who was cowering, right? You, nobody wants to cower or groveling or begging, right? As an inferior human being. Well, sure, he's humble, but that's because he's inferior, right? See, the sort of insult, the insult attached to it, okay? And that's sometimes how people view humility today, isn't it? It's not always a compliment in today's society, in today's culture, to be called humble, um, people value someone who puts themselves first and stabs other people in, va- in, in the back and seeks to advance themselves in their own career. Look out for number one, right? Um, but, but humility is one of the supreme virtues in Christianity. And Paul talks about this also over, for example, in Ephesians 2, 3, when Paul says that each one of us should regard each other as more important than himself. Okay. And interestingly, in the context there, in Ephesians 2, who is the supreme example of humility? It's, of course, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2.5, Paul goes on and says that 
though Jesus was God, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, right? Though he had the right to rule, he became a servant. Though he was immortal, he died a criminal's death on a cross. Um, He who was exalted became despised. He who was high became low. So, So Jesus Christ is our extreme and supreme example of this kind, the Christian kind, the, the, the valuable kind of, of humility. And so here in Ephesians 4.2 then, back to our text, Paul is calling us to have the same kind of humility that Jesus Christ had, to make ourselves nothing. It doesn't mean to despise ourselves and look down upon ourselves, but to put ourselves in a position of serving others. Uh, yes, we have strengths and abilities, but use those to benefit others more than ourselves. So it's important to develop this attitude here because that will be key in helping us live at unity with others. If we're trying to live in unity with others and we are humble, then it's not that I'm right because I'm smarter than you or anything like that. It's, look, I've studied this and I will share my opinion, uh, but you also have an opinion and we can have a discussion about it and maybe come to some sort of agreement. Maybe not, we can still love each other because I recognize I might be wrong and love is more important than being right. Okay, so that, that attitude of humility helps lead us to unity. Second is gentleness. This also is a fascinating word in Greek. It comes from the Greek word praotes, uh, which does mean gentle or meek. Now, in English, when we think of someone who is gentle or meek, we generally equate it with being weak. Okay, but that's not what praotes means. Preotes has no implication of weakness. It actually means great strength being withheld. It has in mind sort of a gentle giant. Think of a giant blacksmith with bulging muscles and chest, okay, and all of that uh, holding a little baby. Okay, it's a gentle giant, great strength being withheld. That's preotes. A uh, related word is praus. Praus is uh, a word used in Greek for a tamed beast. Okay, praus was an animal, like maybe a lion or a bear, who had been trained or domesticated until it was under control. Okay, so a tamed man, a gentle man, a gentleman, is a person who has every instinct or passion under perfect control. They are a gentle beast. Okay, a power under control. Uh, Again, only one person in history really could qualify as being completely gentle, and that's Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ uses the same word of himself in Matthew 11, 29, when he says that he is gentle and lowly of heart. Okay, now, would you say that Jesus is weak? I hope not. Nobody would ever say Jesus was weak. He was God in human form, God incarnate. He has, as God, all power, but it was restrained. He emptied himself of it. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. And that's the word Jesus uses of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Maybe this is why another title for Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's this lion, but he's a lamb. Very interesting imagery there. That's also from John in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. Okay, so when we take all this and put it together... Uh, the word praus or, 
uh, uh, Proteus is not picturing this docile creature that's completely broken, um, this this compliant, mild-mannered person, complacent, I don't care what happens to me sort of thing. It's nothing that of that sort. Gentleness is power-restrained. It's controlled ferociousness. Okay, That means that someone who is gentle can still use force, as Jesus did, clearing out the temple as an example, can still get quite angry when the circumstances call for it. It's directed passion. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't have passion. You should have passion, but direct it in a way that is helpful and beneficial. Okay, so um, it, it, uh, preotes doesn't mean never getting angry. It means getting angry at the right time. Again, as Paul talks about uh, later in Ephesians 4.26, uh, be angry and do not sin, or in your anger, do not sin. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. So this second term, gentleness, um, it doesn't mean never getting angry. It doesn't mean being weak or meek or um, cowardly or anything like that. It means to be a gentle giant, power under control, power directed in the right way. Okay, that's gentleness. Let's move on to long-suffering. The third term here, long-suffering. The Greek word here is makrothumia. It could also be translated as patience. Um, the word was used later uh, when explosives were invented uh, of having a long fuse, a piece of dynamite with makrothumia, a long fuse. Okay, now, does dynamite lack power? Of course not. It has the ability to destroy, to annihilate. Okay, but a stick of dynamite takes a long time, quite a while, to explode. Okay, so power like dynamite is exactly what you and I have in Jesus Christ. We talked about that in Ephesians 1 through 3, all over the place. But the point that Paul is making is, is uh, have a long fuse on your power. Okay, so when people are trying to provoke you, trying to get a reaction out of us, trying to make us blow up in anger, anger, the proper response is to be long-fused, to be long-suffering, to show self-restraint. Again, there's this idea of power under control. Uh, do not hastily retaliate. Um, yeah, we have the power to take revenge, but we don't take revenge. Uh, we have a spirit which refuses to retaliate. We all know people who blow up in anger at the tiniest little thing. Okay, that's, that, that person has a short fuse. Uh, Paul tells us, calls us here to have long fuses. The ability to bear insult and injury without bitterness, without complaint. I think God, of course, is the greatest example here of someone who is long fused. How often do we sin? Every day. Every minute of every day in some cases. Maybe for all of us, because we're not aware of half the times we sin. And what do we do? Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again. But do we? Yes. <laughs> a day later, a week later, a month later, we're back at it. Okay. And does God say, that's it. I've had it. I'm done with you. No. <laughs> he loves. He forgives with patience and long suffering. He could annihilate us, but he has his power under control. He is long suffering. That's the third term. Fourth, Paul calls us to bear with one another. All right, that means to put up with the shortcomings of other people. Um, that kind of has a negative connotation because then we're recognizing their shortcomings, but Paul really means it in a positive way. We're supposed to bear with one another in love. That's the fifth one, the word in love. We'll get to that. 
but it's sort of like when parents put up with their children's shortcomings because you love them and you want them to mature. Are, are children good at everything they do? No, but you know that they are learning. And so you bear with them. You recognize that they're not perfect yet. Neither are you. We're all in process. We're learning. And so we're going to bear with one another, even encourage and support one another. Okay. And of course, the reason for this is love. That's this fifth attitude uh, that Paul mentions here. This love, I'm sure you can imagine, is agape love. It's this unconditional, no strings attached, unending, eternal type of love. Uh, It's the kind of love Paul describes in more detail in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the kind of love God has for us. It's the kind of love that uh, had Jesus go to the cross while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Why? Because of his agape love for us. So that means if we're going to have agape love for somebody else, there can be no conditions attached to that love. We love them because he loved us. He first loved us. Okay? Um, If they insult and injure us, we don't feel anything but kindness towards them. Um, it's the ability to love the unlovable. Oh, but I just can't love them. You don't know what they, no, you you can't say, but I love them because I love them because God asked me to love them, period. So to love those who hate you, to love those who don't even want your love or return your love in any way, shape or form. Obviously this is not an emotional kind of love. Uh, this love is bound to the will. It's a choice. It's uh, the love that loves a person when all your emotions scream out for hate and retaliation because of what they've done. It's the kind of love that sometimes keeps marriages going when the honeymoon is over. It's the kind of love that allows Christians to walk in unity. It's agape love. I am still working on the Gospel Dictionary entry on love, for those of you who are part of it. Sorry it's taking so long. There's lots of reasons for that, but we will eventually get that added to the Gospel Dictionary online course where we will learn more about love. All right, sixth then in Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Endeavoring just means um, make every effort, be diligent, eagerly, earnestly, diligently. It's actually a word that the trainers of gladiators in Rome used when sending out his men to fight to death in the Colosseum. Okay, if, if you're sending out or you're going out to fight to death in the Colosseum, are you going to pretty much sort of go at it half-heartedly? Oh, well, I might give, if I feel a little tired today, I don't know if I'm going to go all out on this. I'm going to hold some back in reserve. You know, I'm, I'm, I just can't, don't, don't feel like giving my full effort. No, if you're fighting to the death, you're going all out. Okay, so make every effort to stay alive today. That's the point. And that's what gladiators did, and that's what we are to do. But it's not make every effort in a fight to the death. What does Paul call us to do? To make every effort for unity of the Spirit. Um, It's interesting what Paul is not saying here. Uh, There's a lot of emphasis both in the world and in the church on making unity. But interestingly, Paul is not calling on us to make unity. In fact, I don't even think we can make unity. He's telling us to keep what we already have, what already exists, and it exists in the Spirit. Unity doesn't come from us. It comes from God by the Holy Spirit. And it's simply our task to live in it, 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates unity, and it's our job to live in it. How? By adopting these attitudes that Paul is, is writing about here in these verses. So, um, and that's just what Paul is talking about here, this unity of the Spirit. We're all one in the Spirit. We all have the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us when we become Christians. And in fact, it's sort of like when we live in unity, we are seeking to divide God. Can God be divided? Of course God cannot be. God is indivisible. We talked earlier about uh, the Trinity of God, but God in his essence is indivisible. He is one God in three persons. And God is fully unified with each other. Uh, But um, it's one of these mysteries of the Trinity that we talked about earlier. And unity is one aspect of the Trinity. Three persons in one. And when we live as God wants us to live, if we seek to live in unity, then we are seeking to live the way God is in himself, as a unified being. And that is what we're seeking to live in. We do not create unity. We live in unity. And the six attitudes so far we've looked at help us do that. Seventh then, and finally, this bond of peace which sort of summarizes it all, brings it all together, which is everything Paul has been talking about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, which he's going to go on to talk about in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Peace. Peace with God. Peace with each other. uh, Peace with ourselves. Uh, Obviously, it begins with peace with God. If you're not at peace with God, then you cannot be at peace with others. And it is only when the peace of God rules in our hearts that we can then begin to live at peace with ourselves and peace with others. And uh, so it all begins and ends and leads to peace. All right, so those are the seven attitudes to sort of do a heart checkup on us when we are trying to find unity in the midst of conflict. And, And when you're in conflict, Paul's attitude here, Paul's point here, is don't point to the other person and say, you need to change. When you're in conflict, look into your own heart. Try to develop these seven attitudes of unity in your own heart. Attitudes of lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, love, unity, and peace, okay, which we strive after with all of our energy and being. And in that way, we will begin to develop unity. Now, look, I know it's a tall order. I know it's a difficult task. But remember, this follows everything Paul has already written about in Ephesians 1 through 3, about all the riches and inheritance and blessings and strength and power that we've already been given in Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. If I said, uh, God wants you to give $100,000 to your favorite charity, you might say, Jeremy, um, (laughs) I can't do that. I don't have that kind of money. Great, I don't either. But what if I changed it a little bit and I said this? Hey, guess what? Elon Musk has just given you $1 million, but he has one stipulation. He wants you to give 10% of it to your favorite charity, $100,000. You must agree to that or you don't get the million. (laughs) Okay, that's a little bit different, isn't it? Of course you will take $1 million with the stipulation that you give $100,000 away. But you notice in both cases, you're giving $100,000 away. One, in the first case, you're giving it out of your lack. You don't have $100,000. In the second case, you're giving away $100,000 from your plenty. You have a million and you're just giving away 10%. And you can keep $900,000, the rest. 
Okay? That's what God is asking us to do here through the pen of Paul. God is saying, Ephesians 1 through 3, look at these millions and billions of dollars, trillions even, infinite resources I've given to you because you are now seated with Jesus Christ. And out of those riches, here's what I want you to do. First, I want you to walk in unity. I want you to develop these seven attitudes. It seems difficult. It seems impossible. Well, no, it doesn't. Not when you realize the resources you have uh, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ in you. And uh, remember, Paul is writing here to a church, the Ephesus church, that was riddled with disunity and division and strife. The Jews and Gentiles were basically battling it out between each other about what to believe and how to behave and all sorts of things. They had racial problems and uh, religious problems, belief problems, practice uh, how they dressed, what they eat, where they go, uh, all sorts of problems. And uh, Paul is calling them to live at unity with each other. I think if they can, then we can too. And it all begins with changing, developing these seven attitudes of unity in our heart. Okay, so step number one to developing unity is to focus on our own attitudes. If we're going to walk in unity, it does not begin with fixing everybody else first. No, it begins with changing our own hearts, the attitudes of our hearts. And uh, we will pick up next time in Ephesians 4.4 with learning more about how to develop unity in our lives, in our communities, and in this world. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope that what we talked about and discussed was uh, insightful and instructive to you and uh, that you have a wonderful week. We'll uh, pick back up here next time when we return with a study beginning in Ephesians 4.4. All right, we'll see you then.